0: Luke's Gospel, we have slowed down a little just to look at the Beatitudes given by Luke. We're coming to the third tonight, and we want to read from verse 20. Just read from verse 20 through verse 26, Luke chapter 6. Whether you're visiting with us or you're a regular attender, I trust you pay heed to the Word of God when it is read. Give attention to it as if your life depended on it, because herein are words that are of eternal consequence. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, Blessed be poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Amen. Ending our reading there. Let's bow before the Lord once again. Let's all pray. Our God, we are thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. It is not salvation through tears, through sorrow, through expression of regret or lamentation, thy work alone, my Savior. We look alone to the cross. We consider Christ alone, the Lamb of God, that through him sin is dealt with, the blood that makes atonement for the soul. O God, may our eyes be drawn to consider him tonight May we be challenged in our sin. Should there be one here, still unregenerate, lost, on their way to hell, God, we tenderly ask, we plead with thee, have mercy on them, deal kindly with them, we pray. Show much grace to them. Help them, O God, to see what they have yet To truly understand, may they come to a saving knowledge of Christ before they leave this place tonight. Do thy work, give help to this preacher. We lay claim to the promise of the Holy Ghost. May he empower and lead and help. May the words drop as honey to the soul. May they come with challenge to the heart. May they do thy great work in expanding and extending the kingdom of Christ. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 7, we are given the record of Christ in Jerusalem, there for the Feast of Tabernacles. We find him in the record of John 7 in the temple, uh, saying certain things that were drawing attention uh, to himself and causing people to wonder who he was. There was a dispute Over whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And we're told in John seven verse thirty one, many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? So they're they're thinking about what they see, they're considering the evidence that is there in the life of the Lord Jesus, and they're trying to come to a conclusion. And those conclusions, as they come to them, seem to have been drawing some of them at least to closer to the kingdom. Upon recognizing this, we are told then that the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. These are the temple security, if you like. the henchmen, the hired individuals that were appointed go go and deal with this issue. Go and get rid of this problem. And so they are sent, given orders, to arrest the Lord Jesus and deal with the issue as He is causing this stir among the people. And some of the discussion seems to be leaning towards actually acknowledging the words that He speaks and making commitment to His cause, if you like. The Lord Jesus continues to teach. The people continue to debate. Is this the prophet Is this the Christ? Some of the language that we find in John 7. So then we come to verses 45 and 46. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, this is the Pharisees say to the officers, Why have you not brought him? Where is he? Why didn't you bring him? Is that not what we sent you to do? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Never man spake like this man. These men were given a very clear order. Their instructions were simple. Get him, bring him. But such is the power and influence of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are unable to fulfill the mandate given to them. It is prophesied of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. With the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. At least in part you can see fulfillment of this, how his words impact his enemies. They can't even fulfill simple orders such as the power of his speech. And it is difficult not to think of the oratorical genius of Christ when you read the Beatitudes and you ponder them carefully. He who said to Moses, Who hath made man's mouth, took a mouth himself, and used it in a way the world has never seen. And when you read the Beatitudes, that comes across. And yet, the language is not merely for our admiration. It is deeply searching and profound. One commentator I was reading this week said, This is radical preaching. Luke's Beatitudes are four spiritual H-bombs, concentrated theological epigrams that detonate with increasing effect, blowing away shallow talk of discipleship, and thereby calling for true commitment. And they do. There's no messing around. This is what we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, as we consider from verse 20. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And last week, blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. The intention, as I've said already in previous weeks, is to confirm the legitimate, the real, and to convict the false among the broad crowd of disciples that were following the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would be feeling in my duty if I did not bring the language of these beatitudes in such a way that would be challenging. My my, my goal is not to speak of these in such a way that is flowery for our admiration merely, that we can consider what, what wonderful thoughts these are. They are to be felt. They're to be felt within the soul. They're calling out those that may be not true in our midst, Challenging us all to more commitment to Christ. And so we come to the third beatitude recorded by Luke in verse 21, part B. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye that weep now. You're favored if you weep now, for ye shall laugh. We're considering then tonight grace to weep as we ought. Grace. To weep as we ought. The first thing I want us to see here is that it is a a weeping combined with a true confession. It is a weeping combined with a true confession. Look again at verse 1. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. How are we to understand this? How do we understand what the Lord here is dealing with? This, this weeping, we need to get that first before we move on to what exactly is involved in all of this. So we, we think first then that weeping is an outcome of sin. Weeping is an outcome of sin. The first reference to sorrow or crying or weeping in the Bible is at the fall. When God speaks to the woman, Genesis three sixteen, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Sorrow, sorrow for woman. And then God addresses Adam in the next verse, Genesis three seventeen cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. The first expression then of sorrow is found at this point, at this moment, where man rebels against his God man decides that he would rather go against the very clear instruction that God had given to him. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. Don't go near it. Don't certainly eat of it It is definitely clearly given to them. But they disobey and they go their own way. They participate in that which God had forbidden and sorrow is then their lot. I don't know when they first expressed sorrow, perhaps the first expression of sorrow, not just God stating it, was when Adam was driven from Eden and he had to start tilling the ground beyond the boundaries of Eden. Oh no, what have I done? What have we done? And anyone here who gardens and tills the ground will have some idea of the hard work that can be involved in in trying to make uh, fallow soil productive soil. Well, this is where Adam found himself, and maybe on his first occasion (laughs) of venturing beyond Eden, trying to make life beyond that place, he realized the true sorrow of sin in the world. And then, of course, as Eve brought forth Cain and Abel, there would have been sorrow in the midst of that as well. Sorrow, this becomes man's lot, his experience. But the point is that weeping is immediately pronounced As part of man's experience, both male and female, once they rebel against God. In case we might think, well, it's just for man. No, it's clear that it's going to be part of the woman's experience as well as the man's. So when we think of the word weeping, we have to, we must. When we read this language, Blessed are ye that weep now. You can never understand that if you disconnect it from the original A statement of sorrow in this world. You have to go back to Genesis. You must correlate that weeping is not just something that hangs just suspended, disconnected from everything else, just an experience of man isolated from everything else. It is a product of sin, it flows out of sin. Weeping exists because of sin. Sometimes when events transpire in our lives that are particularly difficult and hard, one of the things people do wrongly, of course, is they begin to blame God. And they blame God for their sorrows. But God is not the one to blame. Sin is what has brought our sorrows, beloved. Always we must see it in that light. So when Jesus tells us very plainly that here and now is the time for meep, weeping, we ask the question, why? Blessed are ye that weep now. Why, why would that be the case? Why would it be the case that it is a, a, a favorable, if we can use that language, it is a favorable thing to weep now? Again, we can't get this if we disconnect it from the fall. So you must be having in your mind, well, well weeping is a product of sin. So, the Lord says, we are blessed if we weep now. There's something there relating to sin. I put it to you, beloved, that the reason every man who wishes to know the favor of God should weep now is because each man has reason to weep now. Everybody, every single person who comes into the world, The primary reason for men to weep is their own sin. There are other reasons to weep. I'm not denying that. There's lots of weeping that goes on in the world for various reasons. But the primary reason for each man to weep now is his own sin. So when Jesus says, blessed are ye that weep now, it is a favorable experience to weep now It relates to sin, and not just sin in general, it is relating to our own sin. It is a favorable experience for you to come to a point where you sorrow over your own sin. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you have you ever done that? Have you ever sorrowed over your own sin? Do you know what it's like to feel a sense of lament, despair, and to weep, truly weep, over your sin? That is what the Lord is teaching. This is blessed. Now, let us understand that a little further. We see that weeping is an outcome of sin, Secondly, confession of sin is not enough to deal with the problem of sin. Confession of sin is not enough to deal with the problem of sin. If the Lord, or should I say rather, since the Lord is saying that you should weep now, and that that weeping is in response to an acknowledgement and awareness of your own sin, it would be very dangerous for us then to conclude that merely by the acknowledgement of our sin, we get the promise that is here Given the consolation as it's put in the language here, ye shall laugh. If we think that merely, okay, preacher you're saying I need to I need to weep now, Jesus is teaching that we need to sorrow now, and that sorrow is directly related to an acknowledgement of of our own sin, therefore I can know the blessing here, the favour expressed, if I will simply acknowledge my own sin. And so you acknowledge your sin and you think, well, well, now I'm one of the blessed. I'm part of those that are favored as expressed here in this particular beatitude. But that's not as simple as that. It's interesting to go through your Bible and note where people said, quote, I have sinned. I have sinned. Any portions come to your mind? The first time we have explicitly those words, thinking of it exactly in that form, I have sinned, is after the seventh plague, when the hail comes upon Egypt. And we read in Exodus 9, verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. I have sinned. He says it again. After the eighth plague, the locusts that come, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the first person who expresses very clearly in this language, I have sinned. The next person is Balaam. Numbers chapter 22, verse 34, when he could not see what even his donkey could see, As God was before him, and three times he is rebuked. And then we are told in verse 34, Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. The next time is in the language of Achan. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, after stealing the Babylonish garment and the silver and the gold that God had clearly said, don't take anything, He goes in and he takes it to himself and he hides it and thinks he's gotten away with it, but he gets exposed. And Achan answered Joshua, Joshua 7 verse 20, and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. I have sinned. The next person is Saul, King Saul. When he set aside God's clear command of how to deal with Amalek, and he just, he just sets aside what God had told him to do. He just decides to do it his own way. Leaves the king, keeps the cattle and flocks and so on. And God had made it plain what he was to do. And when Samuel arrives in the scene, Saul becomes all apparently penitent and says to him, I have sinned, First Samuel 15, verse 24, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. He says it again later in that chapter. Saul would say it again to David as well in 1 Samuel chapter 26. So, so you think of, of what Scripture reveals to us in relation to the acknowledgement of sin. We have Pharaoh, Balaam, Achan, and Saul. Each one of them, either downright ungodly or at the very least spiritually sketchy. And that's, that's the example we have in Scripture. The first individuals given. It is not until we get to King David that Scripture gives clear evidence of the fruit of the repentance expressed. So you have him, and he's confronted by Nathan with his sin. Again, he says, I have sinned. Acknowledges it. But we get an insight into the private life of David in the Psalms. He actually uses that expression, I have sinned, in Psalm 41 verse 4. And we well know the 51st Psalm as well, against thee the only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. In the New Testament, we have two examples of people using the term, I have sinned. The first is in the parable given in Luke chapter 15, relating to the prodigal. He acknowledges, I have sinned. He actually goes to his father, Luke 15, verse 21. The son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. The other is Judas Iscariot. Matthew 27, verse 4 I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Why am I bringing this to you? I am wanting us all to have a very clear understanding that as we read the language of the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed are ye that weep now, and that that is calling for sorrow for our own sin, I want us to realize that it is not just a confession of sin that is needed. Confession of sin is not enough to deal with the problem of sin. And you may say, I have acknowledged that I have sin. I admit it. I confess it. I I don't deny it. But I want you to ask the question, (laughs) in which party do you find yourself? Are you with Pharaoh, Balaam, Achan, Saul, and Judas Iscariot? Or are you with David and the prodigal son? You see, in in David and the prodigal son, we have evidence given of them not merely saying, I have sinned, but that being acknowledged in private before God. One group Admits their sin, but the other group goes to God to confess and forsake their sin. David, we know, I've made mention of Psalm 51, Psalm 41 already. There's the penitence that is expressed in private. He knows that he has sinned against God. He brings it to God. The prodigal, even before he went up and went to his father to confess his sin to him to him, within his own heart, he says. I will arise and go to my Father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. So there's a private awareness, an expression of it, where there's only an audience of God before him. And then he goes and explains it and pronounces it to his Father. You see, there's there's a great, there's a vast, there's an eternal difference between admitting sin and going to God to have that sin dealt with. And there are many people, perhaps even here tonight, and you admit sin. You don't deny it. You're not that silly. You understand that much. You know that you are a sinner. You, you comprehend at least that much. And there may be at times where you will even admit it. You will say, I am a sinner. I know myself to be a sinner. But have you gotten before God to have that sin dealt with? That's a very different thing to get before God with a sense of true grief. Pharaoh, Achan, Saul, these men had their sin exposed and they were concerned about the judgment that was coming as a result of their sin. But they were not concerned about the fact they had grieved God in heaven. It didn't pass through their minds to think of the sorrow of the fact that they have they have sinned against God. They truly, they, they said it, they expressed it, but they did not fully understand it. It didn't drive them to their knees to beg for mercy before God, the way you might expect. <sighs> grieving over the judgment upon sin and grieving over the sin itself are two very different Matters, And so, the words of our Lord challenge external religiosity. Blessed are ye that weep now. It's not, it's not just that you, you, you confess sin, you, ag- you acknowledge sin. It is a deep heart work. It is the opposite of a spirituality that says but does not. It is the opposite of a spirituality that works to be seen of men but forgets that the only audience that matters is God. Not like the Pharisees and religious leaders who treasured the uppermost rooms at the feast and the chief seats in religious settings and everything's externalized, it is in the heart. Is a soul that, that, that craves peace with God. That understands the weight of sin and what it deserves. Turn for a moment to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 because we have illustrated for us in the life of a particular individual. What should we see in Luke chapter 8? Maybe actually Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 I'm thinking about. Sorry. And we'll read from verse 36. Luke 7 verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meeting the Pharisees' house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Here is a woman who is broken. And she doesn't stand pronouncing it to the world, it's not so much that she's trying to declare to everyone anything. She just, she knows Jesus is here. The Lord is, she runs to the feet of Christ and begins sobbing. Now, when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. The last place you want to be is in the position of Simon. Simon with the Son of God before him, should be inquiring in relation to his own spiritual condition. He should be looking for help for himself. He should be humbling himself before the Lord, but he doesn't. He sits there in his lofty, exalted opinions of himself, bringing the Lord into his house really to test him. Not really sincere, nothing really of heart in the invite. He's he's trying to determine, is he who he claims to be? And wonderfully, in the providence of God, this woman comes in as a perfect way for him to discern, is this man who he claims to be? And so he judges with her there by his feet. Oh, you can can see it. You can see how he has no understanding of the sinfulness of sin. Because it's not so much that there is a woman washing his feet, it's that it is this woman... It's this woman that is the problem. And so you can see him as he gauges humanity. Some people are worthy and some are unworthy. Even how he views this woman, it is made plain. This woman's not worthy. If this man understood what she was, how she had lived, he would get it. He would not let her anywhere near him. I wouldn't. But there are certain people I would because they would be worthy. Simon doesn't get sin. He doesn't get it in the life of others. He doesn't get it in his own life either. This is not the kind of person you want to be. Did Simon pray? No doubt he did. Long prayers. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. This is one of the most religious individuals in the community. He has his prayers, his devotion, his study of the word and the law. He teaches. He's an example in the community. He is everything that the community would would require of him in terms of the context of the Pharisees. Of the strictest sect, there he is, devoted to his religiosity. But the man is clueless about the nature of humanity and the extent of his own sin and the sins of others. He doesn't get it. So Simon doesn't really understand what's going on here. He, he, He doesn't get it at all. And he doesn't, he, the the regenerate heart, the saved soul reads this passage and we get it. We understand. We've been there. Not physically. We never had that opportunity to be right at the physical feet of the Lord Jesus. But we have been there in prayer. And we have lamented when no one else knew anything about it. And regularly it comes upon us in waves of different degrees. The child of God is brought to weeping over his sin. It is an ongoing experience for the people of God. And it's not something to shy away from or be ashamed of. Blessed are ye that weep now. When your heart is turned over by the sense of your own sin. When you lament the atheism that is so evident within your own heart and life, when you, when you don't really believe God, when you aren't considering the cross, when you go days without expressing adoration to your Savior, When life spirals out of control, you you say things and you think things and you do things that are abominable in a sight and you're found again afresh at the feet of Christ, sorrowing, weeping. The world knows nothing about it. But you have to get there. You're compelled to sorrow over your own sin. And if you know nothing of which I speak, Chances are you know nothing of regenerating grace. Do we all weep to the degree that others weep? No. I have known people that could struggle, they they, they struggle to pray without weeping. Wouldn't matter the context. In public, in private, even giving thanks at the table, shedding tears. They just can't get over the love of God for them. They know their sin. Blessed are ye that weep now. Do you weep? Do you? Do you you understand? Do you know what it is more than just to acknowledge your sin? But to get before God and weep in this life. Secondly, it is a weeping that concludes with a true consolation. It is a weeping that concludes with a true consolation. Not just combined with a true confession, but it concludes with a true consolation. Ye shall laugh. Ye shall laugh. Again, you read Matthew, and it speaks of those mourning, and they shall be comforted. It's uh, very similar. You look down to verse 25, when he Kind of starts putting the woes contrasting it. He speaks in verse twenty five, Who unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. So mourning is brought in, just like Matthew had made mention of. So there's a lot it's similar, it's a similar language, similar emphasis. But it has a consolation, ye shall laugh. First, it is a consolation that is partially known. It is partially known. The gospel promises the consolation of sins forgiven. So we don't weep perpetually in despair of our sin. There is the alleviating sense of what Christ offers through his finished work. The Lord Jesus said to that woman, we we read it, he doesn't want her to just stay there at his feet weeping. He says, thy sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. You don't have to stay here weeping and weeping and weeping. Come to a sense that your sins are forgiven. Those of us that are saved know that Christ promises and extends to us A measure of consolation. And so we may laugh. We may rejoice. We at times are brought to skip through life with an elevated sense of what we have in the Lord. The burden's gone. The forgiveness is real, the embrace is sure, the faith is grounded, the promise is claimed. I am my beloved's and he is mine, and his banner over me is love. I am forgiven. Our souls are consoled by this. And we are a people made happy by the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't stay that way. It doesn't. But it is a consolation that ought to be partially known and is partially known by every child of God. Do you know it? Child of God, are you there? Are you consoled in heart? Did you come into this Lord's day lamenting sin of the previous week? Did you get it dealt with? Did you confess it before the Lord at some point in private or even at some time in, in the worship service? Did you, did you sing, even as we were singing the words of Horatius Bonner? Or did, did, did you have your sin dealt with there as you were singing? you get the sense of, of what the Lord offers as your soul brought to be enriched by the promises of the gospel. We should note that it is not the Lord's will for us to be perpetually in a state of grief over our sin. We, should not, we shouldn't elevate that to the degree that we make that a pious expression of the Christian faith. I'm always going to be sorrowing over my sin, just a perpetual sorrow. I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner. And never getting to the sense of the consolation of the gospel. We have to get there. We do. We need to allow the Word of God and embrace the promises of God to the point that our souls are lifted up in spite of our sin. We, 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 we get to that, and he say, David, I, 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 occasionally, occasionally, there are those souls, and they have backslidden greatly in their lives. They once ran for God. They climbed mountains, spiritual mountains for Christ, and they were giants that were looked up to and served the Lord with such readiness of mind and power by the Spirit. Something happens. They drift. They get away from God. And even when they get back, when they get back and they start on the path again and they, they, they feel a sense of restoration, I have met some individuals that, that will set themselves aside as if I know I'm forgiven, but I can never get where I once was. They shelved themselves in the kingdom of Christ. I know the Lord forgives me. I know what He has offered. I know what, what I, I have in Him. And the blood has cleansed away my sin. But, but I don't deserve to serve Him the way I did. And they have this pious and the, a, a justified reasoning in their mind. They think, and I don't deserve to be full-on involved in the work again. Well, there may be certain limitations to that, to some degree, but be very careful. When David made confession of a sin, when he lamented, and again. <laughs> Is adultery orchestrating the death of Uriah and all that was involved, a year of deceit. When his sin is exposed and he confesses it to God, acknowledges it before the prophet and then gets away and gets alone and laments over it. He doesn't stay in a condition of lament about his own future. What does he pray? Oh, David understood the power of the blood of Christ. He understood the significance of the atonement that is promised for every believer. Restore unto me, not just the sense of my forgiveness, restore unto me the joy, the joy. Give me the consolation, Lord. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Give me something of that consolation. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Then I shall teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto thee. I'll be used in ministry, in reaching the lost, I'll once again know what it is to be used by God in His kingdom. I trust no one here is so overwhelmed by the guilt of the past. And while you know you may be forgiven, that you live under a cloud that forbids you from giving yourself wholeheartedly to serve the Lord in whatever way you can. Don't stay there. No, that's where the devil will keep you. Not where Christ would have you to be. You get before Him and you, you, you lament over the sorrow, but you beg for the restoration of joy. And you beg for it until you know something of it as you see Christ by faith bleeding on the cross on your behalf. Not to give you a halfway experience of His salvation, but to deal with everything and give you joy in Himself. It is a consolation that is partially known. It is a consolation that is still to be fully known. It is not yet fully known. Ye shall laugh. There is much of that laughter that still awaits us who trust in Christ. Even knowing the consolation of the gospel, not all our sorrows are removed our sins are still present. We still battle with them and the sorrows that are experienced because of them. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. His life is just like sparks. As sure as the sparks only go upward, so man's life has trouble. This is our lot. But God is going to deal with it. He is. He is going to deal with it. And we continue to weep in this life. We don't just weep over our own sins and our own departures from God. We weep over the sins of others and their departure, don't we? Psalm 119, verse 136, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Many a parent knows what that's like. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep, they haven't a heart for the word of God. So they don't look at their children numb. Just shrugging their shoulders and saying, whatever will be, will be. Rivers of waters run down their eyes. Parent with unsaved children, let the rivers flow. You weep them into the kingdom. Don't stop weeping. Keep weeping. There is no power in the the tears themselves, but there's something the Lord responds to the broken heart. His sympathy, his compassion responds to the broken. You know it. It is clear through the Gospels. He is drawn to the broken. They get before him, and all they can do is just sob and sob and sob and cry and appeal. To God to show mercy. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. What a thing it will be! What a thing it will be to be in God's hell. sorrowing, in part because you thought little or nothing of the sorrow of your godly parents. Night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year, they're sobbing over your departure from God's truth. God forbid you should sorrow in hell over a lost and missed opportunity. Yes, we we sorrow, we do. We keep on sorrowing. And we sorrow for our families. And we sorrow for our communities. And we sorrow for many a thing that is around us. And so we should. The greatest need as we approach the presidential election is a people who sorrow for America. Not brashly, boldly trying to denigrate the other side and just sorrowing over the absolute folly of a nation that is being split in half Because so few have the mind of Christ. Before we close, turn to Revelation 21. There will be a full, a final consolation that will be set forever. Ye shall laugh. You will know the complete contrast of sorrow. It will be removed. Revelation 21, verse 1 I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, The only person that can deal with the curse is God. The curse. The sorrow of Genesis 3. The experience of it every day since that moment. Sorrow. Weeping. Crying. Lamentation. Grief. Pain. Death. This is all encompassing in this life. And though we know something of a little consolation in relation to our own sins being forgiven and placed on Christ, there is coming a day of a full, a final, a complete consolation when God, God shall wipe away all tears. The finality of the curse ended, gone Blessed are ye that weep now. Ye shall laugh. Don't be so naive to treasure up all the laughter and frivolity of this life. And then for you, the future is nothing but sorrow and lamentation forever. Don't be so blinded by the devil. Don't be so given to your own carnality. You must come to a comprehension of your own sin. Not just saying, I'm a sinner, but actually getting before God in lamentation. And if you don't feel it, if you don't sense it, get before God and pray for something of it. God, help me to see my sin, comprehend my sin. Why is it that I'm so numb to my sin? I can watch filth and fill my mind with utter depravity and think and feel nothing of it. Cheat, steal, and express whatever sins in all their various forms. Blaspheme God daily. And I take for Him life and I take all the benefits of this life and don't even give so much as any thank you to God. You should get before God and God break your hard and stony heart. You come to an understanding. You better, you better sorrow now. If you don't sorrow now, that is your entire eternity. Sorrow. There will be no escaping it. Ignore it. Mock it. Be like all the generations of the past. Make light of God's prophets as they bring God's word. But oh, the day, the day when God, when, when his compassion comes to an end. And you enter into an experience where your sorrows can't even be compared to the sorrows of this life. I know we sometimes talk about certain experiences being like hell on earth, but what a misuse of the term. There is nothing even remotely close to hell on this earth. May God have mercy. Let's bow together in prayer. Are you saved? Are you in Christ? Are you born again? Have you ever wept over sin? Does it grieve you whenever you're giving yourself to sin? Thinking lustfully, carnally, Filth is in your mind and in your life. Do you grieve over it? Do you weep now? Young person, Have you wept? Have you wept before God? Do you know what it's like to weep before God? Are you the cause of weeping? Do you have parents that weep, weep continually, repeatedly over your soul because they see nothing, nothing of the fruit of faith and repentance in your life? I appeal to you, the Lord put these things in to give clear differentiation so you you and I would understand. We are either saved or we are not. Blessed are ye that weep now. God, we pray, have mercy on us all. For those of us who are thy people, we pray for the spiritual discernment to know how to weep. Give us help to weep over erring souls. Deliver us, Lord, from sitting like Simon critically over the lost, making comparison, elevating ourselves. God, have mercy. Give us compassion. Help us to weep. Help us to weep tonight. A soul here this evening would sit under the word of God and yet turn aside and give no consideration. To the things said and the need of their souls. God, we pray, we plead with thee. Make this make this place a fruitful womb where souls are born again by the Spirit of God. Lord, haunt those perishing souls tonight. Make them feel their sin to see the error of their ways and to come in faith and repentance to Christ. Bless us then before we part from this place in all our conversation. May the word of God live with us and help us through the week that is before us. Be with those that go downstairs. Bless the fellowship and the food provided make thy church to live fruitfully this week. Lord, we ask now that thou wilt part us with thy fear in our hearts and thy favor upon us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.